This special episode is a Decentralization 101 workshop. This workshop is presented by the Green Socialist Organizing Project's Education Working Group and is part of our 101 series. You can learn more about the series at greensocialist.net slash 101s. Good evening, everybody. Um, thank you for joining us for our uh, March Green Socialist Organizing Project 101 workshop. Uh, this month we are doing uh, Decentralization 101. Um, this is part of our uh, recurring 101 series. We do them on the fourth uh, Tuesday of every month on uh, at 8 p.m. Eastern. Uh, in 2022, when we started the series, we did a recurring um, Green Party 101, Eco-Socialism 101, Organizing 101. Uh, we'll still touch on those in 2023, but as you can see, we're branching off a little into some uh, kind of major tangents that come out of those. Um, so in February, we did Independent Politics 101. And uh, this month, we're going to do Decentralization 101. Um, next month in April, we're going to do a uh, Eco-Socialist Green New Deal 101 as part of a, uh, a series of events for Earth Day to May Day. Um, so that's what we've got coming up with our 101s. Um, as usual, I am Chris Blankenhorn. I'm uh, the Illinois Green Party secretary and a former GPUS co-chair. I also served as the Hawkins Walker 2020 um, social media and tech director. And with me is Garrett Wasserman. I'll let Garrett introduce himself. Yeah, everyone. I'm Garrett Wasserman. Uh, I'm a former GPUS uh, Green Party National uh, co-chair, as well as a member of my uh, uh, local and state Green Party, Green Party of Pennsylvania. And I've been involved in uh, ballot access work and working on uh, several campaigns here in Pennsylvania. So welcome, everybody. I'm glad you're here. Yeah, and as I, as I said at the beginning, this, uh, this is a monthly workshop that we do on the fourth Tuesday of every month. Uh, you can learn more about this 101 series, see what's coming up next, uh, watch old old uh, sessions and things like that at greensocialist.net slash 101s. And uh, you can get more involved with the Green Socialist Organizing Project broadly at greensocialist.net. Uh, you can see all of our resources, like in the education department. Um, you can sign up to become a member and um, you know, get involved that way. So without further ado, uh, we'll get started on our Decentralization 101 workshop. Um, so to start off, I mean, what is decentralization, right? Um, one of the reasons we end up talking about it so much uh, is because it is one of the Green Party's 10 key values. Uh, it's, it's number five for the U.S. Green Party. Um, so that's why you hear a lot about it when you're in green, you know, in green circles, uh, because it's one of the 10 key values that guide our party. Um, but what is decentralization? It's activities, planning, decision making that are distributed away from a central authoritative group. Um, what that looks like is completely different, whether we're talking about a decentralized organizing in a local, like in a local chapter, 
uh, versus how it plays out on the national level, um, right? So there's there's kind of decentralized systems within decentralized systems uh, in, in what the Green Party says that they, um, you know, strive for. So that, that key value says centralization of wealth and power contributes to social and economic injustice, environmental destruction, and militarization. We seek restructuring of social, political, and economic institutions away from a system controlled by and mostly benefiting the powerful few to a, de a democratic, less bureaucratic system. Decision-making should, as much as possible, remain at the individual and local level while assuring the civil rights are protected for all. So we're not just talking about how we structure the Green Party um, when we talk about decentralization, right? We're talking about how we structure society. Um, we're, we're talking about, you know, a, a radical alternative to the highly centralized and hierarchical capitalist system that we live in. Um, you know, even, even within, you know, social democracies with strong um, social welfare states, um, the, it's mostly centralized top-down uh, society. And that, that's, you know, kind of at the core of, of why we, you know, as Greens value decentralization. Um, you know, a, a way if, if people aren't familiar of thinking about this, it's the bottom left of the uh, political spectrum that you see all over, right? Um, as opposed to the top left, which would be, uh, you know, statist formations like Maoists and things like that, um, you know, Leninists and, and the such. So um, that's, Garrett, do you have anything to add just kind of starting off? We'll get into details on whether the Green Party, you know, lives up to these values and and why we should try to live up to them, why we should maintain this model. But uh, anything open and bad, Garrett? Yeah, um, I'll just kind of emphasize the point here that decentralization is uh, kind of a general principle that we're trying to apply not only to the Green Party, not only to the structure of a political party or a political movement, and not only the structure of you know a government or or you know the what we typically think of as government, right? Um, uh, kind of social decision making. Um, uh, it's also uh, decentralization in economics and the way that we produce things and distribute things. Um, you know, some examples that uh, we'll get into more, but, you know, for example, decentralizing our food production away from very centralized things. It's not only um, corporate control, you know, it, but it's also making sure that things are, are decentralized uh, to make more sense ecologically. Um, so I, one point that uh, is important here is that uh, decentralization, and this is, this is where uh, it gets complicated for a lot of folks, is that we shouldn't look at decentralization as one point by itself. We should look at it as how it interacts with the rest of the pillars and the key values of uh, the Green Party or the Green Movement in general um, to kind of uh, help define exactly what decentralization means in all of these different contexts in the economy and in uh, you know, local governments and parties and things like that. So we'll get more into it, but uh, I just wanted to point that out, that like that's kind of where a lot of the nuance comes from. If you only talk about this definition here, um, yeah, you're kind of miss, missing the forest for the trees, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, we'll, you'll see why as we talk about it more, right? But the reality is that in order to operate effectively, decentralization requires more, like, more effective and efficient communication, more effective and communication, you know, effective and efficient organizing than centralized does. Um, it offers a lot of great benefits, you know, like you know, fluidity and, and um, you know, empowering people at the grassroots level, but uh, to do it effectively, especially 
as we'll talk about on the large continental scale, like we talk about in the United States, um, it, it really requires a high level of collaboration and coordination and communication. Um, and, and if it doesn't, then it, it, it can fall into some pretty serious pitfalls. Um, so with that, those pitfalls, <laughs> right? Um, some problems with decentralization, um, right? That it's not a perfect organizing system. Um, there, we, you know, no one's discovered a perfect organizing system, uh, either socially or, you know, kind of in terms of, uh, you know, radical community and political organizing. Uh, one of us had figured out the secret. Uh, we we wouldn't be where we're at today, I guess is the simple way to say it, right? Um, so some problems of decentralization, um, it can lead to an overemphasis on localism and self-sufficiency, um, right? And that can lead to a whole bunch of problems like they can become isolated and xenophobic, um, even unecological in ways, um, instead of part of a global movement, right? So we can, decentralization can lead to us being in silos, right? Um, especially if we don't have, like I said, those finely tuned communications and coordination systems. Um, that, then even if we wanted to talk and coordinate, it's hard to do. Um, and so we, we just kind of get reverted back into our bubble. Um, and it's never good to be organizing in a bubble. Um, an overemphasis on local production can lead to cooperative capitalism. Um, it, it's Capitalism's a global system, right? And it can't be explicitly you know it can't be sufficiently addressed solely at a local level right you're still going to have to engage in the broader capitalist uh you know economy and global marketplace um so even if you do have a more egalitarian local approach um it's going to be interconnected in a, a whole bunch of ways at least in the foreseeable short term right um with, with the with larger global capitalism and this has been something that you know a critique that's been um you know levied against you know large socialist projects you know throughout history right um i mean as early as the 20s almost immediately after the russian revolution um you know the the people like gramsci were critiquing it um and, and saying you know this is this is state run but within a but still within the capitalist system um they didn't break free uh, mao openly talked about it right um, openly admitted it in his writings, um, you know, and and then it, it can lead to you know reasons for real critique, right? Like um, looking at a project like Venezuela that's done many great things, um, you know, in terms of housing and poverty and all these things, um, but it, it's a petro economy, right? It, it's based solely uh, their, their economy is heavily, heavily, heavily dependent on oil. Um, production. So it's an unecological system, even though it is more egalitarian, um, right? And because we're not able to address these fundamentals of, you know, capitalism at that local level alone, um, you know, it can, as we become more localist and more isolated, uh, our effectiveness in actually achieving broad change is going to be limited. So we've got to watch for that when we're doing, um, you know, decentralized organizing. And, um, we need to make sure that we have inclusiveness in decision-making at the grassroots level, right? Um, it's, it's one thing we'll definitely probably get into more later, but, you know, decentralization doesn't mean we can't have centralized planning and centralized funding 
Um, it means that we can't, that we need to have decentralized democracy and, and democratic decision making and control at the local level. Um, you know, no state in this country has the has the funding presently to be able to adequately provide, um, you know, a real Medicare for all solution for everybody. Right? It's just the old, the federal level is the only place where uh, that level of funding can easily be attained. So. Um, you know, when we say we want Medicare for all, that's obviously a centralized system, but we need to make sure that it's community controlled through community health boards and that local communities are controlling their budget, are controlling their, where their resources are allocated and things like that. So, um, you know, having that inclusiveness in community decision making is essential to effective decentralized society. And then decentralization doesn't necessarily mean there is no hierarchy. Um, the feudal era in Europe was highly decentralized with royalty. Um, Joe Freeman's The Tyr Tyranny of Structurelessness um, is a great piece that every community organizer or political organizer should read, um, especially those that are operating within organizations that, you know, claim to want to, you know, successfully organize in a decentralized way. You should read it and that, you know, Joe Freeman's piece because it really has some great points on, you know, like, like it says in there, you know, the informal hierarchies. Um, the way that, you know, lax, you know, the, the lax bylaws are used by people who can, you know, leverage the way things are done, right? Um, decentralization doesn't mean there's no hierarchy, um, you know, or, or no rules or anything like that. It's not chaos. Um, it it's, it take, actually takes a high level of precision and, and efficiency. Garrett? Yeah, I agree. Uh, uh, the... The decentralization, um, you kind of have to look back a little bit toward history, and uh, that's kind of what Joe Freeman was talking about in the essay here, that as kind of a, a response both to capitalism but also this very statist version of socialism that you would see uh, you know, back in the 60s and things, um, they were very centralized and, and very controlling and, and tended to kind of tell members you, know, you had to act certain ways or, or do certain things or whatever. Um, and so there was this kind of anti-authoritarian backlash where uh, a lot of uh, groups at that time period uh, wanted to, uh, you know, had good goals uh, and good motives to try to avoid any sort of authoritarian structure. But then they kind of got lost in, in this decentralization thing where they, they were so afraid of being authoritarian that they didn't want to make any sort of formal rules or formal structure or anything like that. Um, and uh, the problem with that was that actually created its own version of authoritarian sort of structures. They just were hidden. They just were kind of behind the scenes in, in closed rooms and that sort of thing. They were these more informal hierarchies between people that knew each other and could, you know, behind the scenes talk to each other and make decisions and things because there was no formal process. There was no formal way that members could hold that structure accountable. So instead it happened behind the scenes. So that's one thing that can unfortunately go wrong with decentralization if we're not careful. So we want to we want to kind of really point out this this thing here that decentralization doesn't mean a lack of rules or a lack of accountability um, to the broader movement. Uh, in fact, it has to be more accountable, if anything, uh, for it to work properly. Um, and when, it, when it's working properly, it's 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 very good. Um, but you have to make sure that it works properly, and you have to balance that with uh, criticisms that you see from. Um, uh, other folks who uh, will argue for a more centralized uh, 
version of a socialist party or something like that by saying, you know, if, if you're uh, too off on your own and you get stuck in this very localism thing, it, it's a legit uh, point that um, you can become very siloed. And instead of working with others, you become afraid of others or, or uh, very isolated from yourself or from from others. Right. So we're, what we're trying to do is find this balance here that we don't. Um, we don't want to become too centralized, of course, but if, if there's no rules at all, if the, if there's, if it's kind of free for all, I don't want to tell you what to do, then that breaks down and kind of creates its own informal hierarchies. So when we're talking decentralization, we're trying to find that nice sweet spot there where folks have lots of autonomy to do things and the decision-making happens at local levels, but that doesn't mean that you don't have a certain amount of uh, kind of administrative uh, connection between everything's um, communications and accountability and things like that. Yeah, and another big area that I realized isn't on here is that um, without clear processes, right, without democratic, redecided, um, you know, conflict resolution, things like that, um, how a meeting's ran, right, when it, when it descends into chaos, right, when there's no rules, um, it leaves it wide open for abuse by bad actors, right, because it means that there's no way to, um, you know, interpersonal conflict can tear just literally tear the entire organization apart it's happened so many times um you know where you would think that organizations wouldn't be that susceptible but when there's no clear path to you know resolve issues then they they can often burn out of control um when there is you know a clear bad actor there there's often no you know there, there's often no way to actually address them right, to remove them from the group, to engage in disciplinary action. Uh, and, and often when disciplinary action is taken in decentralized groups, um, there's a backlash uh, against it uh, because it's seen as, you know, authoritarianism for, for uh, you know, even justified, uh, you know, disciplinary action on members or, or anything like that. So, uh, and that goes to society too, right? When, when I look at our society, when I look at, you know, I, an example I think of is local music cultures. Um, I don't think I've ever encountered a local music culture that didn't have a problem with predatory behavior, um, where there wasn't a problem with people in bands dating way younger and underage people, you know, that there wasn't a problem with, you know, the cool kids getting away with stuff. Um, it, it's every music culture I've, I've encountered has had a level of this, right? Um, and, and when we look at our society, we don't have means for conflict resolution, right? We have a justice system that is ineffective in a lot of the things I just talked about, but also it isn't designed for restorative justice. It's not designed for addressing issues. It's designed to punish, right? Or, or more probably more accurately, it's designed to create revenue. Um, in our modern, you know, justice system. It's, it's also set up to be very adversarial as opposed to working together to actually solve the issue. Yeah. So when we, you know, even outside of talking about the Green Party, like in our local neighborhoods, in our local communities, um, you know, we have a complete lack of processes and institutions and outlets to engage in restorative justice, to engage in conflict resolution. Um, the, the, our society doesn't provide them and most of our institutions don't, you know, our civic institutions and political institutions don't provide them adequately either. Um, so without those things, it, it's very hard to, 
you know, rain in problems and things like that. Um, whereas, you know, I've been part of centralized organizations where, you know, whole chapters could be thrown out on the whim of individuals in charge. Right? So like Garrett said, it's a balancing act. Um, but, but I do think, you know, one bullet point that we should have put on here was that how much it opens up to for bad actors if you don't have these processes and how that can completely derail all the work that's, you know, being done. You want to take this one, Garrett? Yeah, sure. So uh, we kind of talked about some of the um, uh, major criti critiques or criticisms or problems that you might run into with decentralization, uh, which uh, a lot of those criticisms are very uh, legitimate. Um, things can go very wrong when there are bad actors and all, like Chris is talking about. Um, but the question, of course, becomes, how do you deal with those issues? What sort of... Uh, what sort of organizational structure should you have in order to take advantage of uh, decentralization, to actually make decentralization work, to create broader freedom and broader democracy and all for folks without falling into those traps? And I think uh, a good way to look at it and, and uh, an underlying principle that uh, GPUS tries to use, and again, we'll get to that in a moment about you know how well it's done it so far. Um, but a principle of that is to form a, a federation or maybe a confederation. Um, my understanding is that the, the federation is, um, I think GPS is technically a confederation because I think a confederation is where the, the broader group is equal with the members as opposed to the federation that is, well, federal structure of the U.S. government. The federal government is over everyone else. It overrules the So... Uh, when we're talking confederations, we're talking the network of communities is still is kind of part of the community itself. It's not, maybe it's a little bit uh, funny sounding, but anyway, you'll see. So um, one form of confederalism is is this idea that you have this um, network of administrative councils or um, uh, committees or whatever you want to call it, uh, where members or are elected from assemblies. So what you're talking about is trying to empower local levels, uh, the local party, local government, whatever. Um, those local groups from towns, neighborhoods, whatever, um, are the ones that actually do most of the decision-making. And once they've come to an agreement, once they've, they've decided to take some action, then you elect someone to be a delegate or a member or steering committee members, some, that kind of thing, to, to carry out that action. And that person is empowered to do those things as well as held accountable for it. Um, and so what's important for all this stuff is that um, anyone who's elected to these positions, such as delegates and all, they should be mandated. They should, they're, whoever they're representing should give them tasks and say specifically, this is what we would like you to do. That's way we, that way we can hold you accountable, that it's not someone just going off on their own and saying whatever they want and doing whatever they want and voting for whatever they want. They need to be accountable. So they need to have a conversation with their local community um, who, who gives them guidance, who gives them mandates on what they're supposed to do when they go and work with other delegates. And they need to be recallable in order to make sure that they're actually held accountable, that if if, uh, if they go off the rails and they, and they start promising things they shouldn't have or whatever it is, they can be recalled and someone who better represents the community can go and do that, um, go and uh, fulfill that task. So this is meant to be very administrative, carrying out decisions that have already been made by the whole community, as opposed to uh, the representative system in the U.S., 
where somebody gets elected and then they go make the decisions on their own with other representatives and they don't consult us, right? They just pass laws and do things and they don't have to talk to anyone and, and <laughs> right? They just go off and do things. It's meant to invert that structure where the decisions are made locally and you're only electing the person to carry out that thing, to make sure it happens, to oversee it, to kind of be the manager of the project, but they didn't decide the project on their own, right? The communities did. Um, so it's important to point out that they're administrative, not policy-making bodies. That's what we're talking about here. And to try to avoid some of the problems that we talked about earlier of siloing ourselves, of isolating ourselves, uh, we have to make sure that the, uh, the, the members, the communities that are part of this network, that are part of this confederation, they need to be independent. They need to rely on mutualism where they're sharing resources. And um, if it's economic, you know, sharing production, uh, sharing policy-making decisions, things like that, uh, so that you're not isolated, you're not siloed, that you're actually making decisions as part of a broader community that's looking at the um, the bigger picture, right? That uh, whatever decisions you're making um, make sense within the entire structure and the goal of the entire community and not just some little group that you're a part of, right? Because, uh, again, that's where, it, <laughs> that's where it gets off the rails or someone can, um, you know, one town, if you're talking economics, one town can say, well, it's good for our workers if we, uh, you know, create a mining facility or whatever it is, and it dumps all the chemicals that go downstream to another community. Um, they could say, well, hey, decentralization, my town can decide if we want to do mining. But really, you know, <laughs> like now when you're talking about environmental issues, it's not affecting just that one town. It's affecting the broader community. And that's the point of having this network, that we have to have these conversations about how do our local decisions impact the entire community and and we have to have accountability through that mechanism so um this is kind of the very broad uh, idea of what a confederation should look like that um tries to promote the most democracy and the most decentralization with communities making their own decisions while still being accountable to the broader membership broader community um so go ahead with your comments chris <laughs> yeah and you know we've seen i think the probably the most the two most, uh, you know, well-known examples of this would be Rojava in in the Kurds in uh, Syria, and then uh, the Zapatistas in Chiapas, Mexico, right? Um, where and, and the Zapatistas, you know, formed out of this, you know, art-filled revolution, <laughs> you know, uh, in response to to NAFTA, right? And in, in response to the, you know, in and many other things, right? It was much more complex, obviously, than, than just a trade agreement, but um, that was kind of a, a news event that was, you know, happening and, and affecting at the time, right? But even in, in, and so what you saw was, you know, an indigenous uprising um, and where communities took independent, you know, gained in some level of independent power. Uh, they collaborate as a community across the region um, you know, but there, there's uh, local democracy, um, and, and it's similar with uh, in the Kurds. It's called uh, democratic confederalism, confederatism, right? Um, sorry, night night. <laughs> night night, buddy. Sorry, it's bedtime for toddler. Um, <laughs> So you know that's where we see see this kind of in practice internationally, right? That's the projects that we can look to. Um, when Garrett was talking about the difference between you know a, feder a, 
a federal system and a confederate a confederate system um you know gpus right is a good example of that right because gpus the green party of the united states is made up of its member states and caucuses right um it cannot dictate to those states and caucuses in fact it is its path is decided by the delegates elected to the national committee um you know and and that has a varying level of effectiveness that we'll get into later right but it is a, it's a confederate a confederated system um where the member states are actually the power and most green parties um in the united states operate the same way on the state level as well right um the the this the coordinating committee for the illinois green party is basically the managers between our bi biannual full membership meetings right um our path is guided by the members um the member it says in our in the illinois green party bylaws the membership is the highest decision making body so that's what you get out of a confederate system right um but the confederate system does it through <clears throat> through representative democracy right through delegates uh, instead of necessarily doing it through direct democracy. Um, and an interesting way we see this play out too, right, is even though the Green Party is a decentralized Confederate system, we're elect, you know, we're running in in top in top-down elections for top-down seats in government. Um, and when we look at you know a, a tangential or a parallel organization in DSA, we can see that there's a problem when you're electing people into the system with accountability, right? And over the years, we've seen this pop up numerous times in DSA where their membership realizes once someone's elected, it doesn't matter that DSA endorsed them or if they're a member, they really have no control, no level of accountability. They can't recall them. You know, all they can really do is revoke their membership, which they tend to vote against doing like Jamal, they did with uh, Jamal Bowman and uh, BDS um or they you know could revoke their endorsement but the person's already in office right so even when we do try to organize internally within you know with a different mindset we're still electing people into an extraordinarily top-down and hierarchical system that is designed for a lack of accountability and we talked about that last week in our independent politics workshop right or last month in our independent politics workshop right that the U.S. political system is designed to be memberless. It's designed so that the people don't actually have any route directly to power or any ability to hold accountability outside of, you know, two-party elections. Um, and that's by design. So, um, you know, even when we do try this out, we're still operating, you know, it's the problem with that localism, right? Even if we're talking about the Green Party of the United States, which or the Green Party globally, right, which is a, a, a political organization with member, you know, hundred plus member countries, we're still operating within global capitalism, um, and, and it causes problems when those those two systems butt heads. Um, so that that's kind of you know thinking about decentralization in terms of how to run a society, right, and um, how 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 to organize society in a decentralized way. And that's based on the meaning of confederalism by Murray Bookchin, um, which kind of raises the question, you know, what should democracy look like? Um, it should be direct. Decisions are made directly by people. Power remains in the hands of the people themselves. Uh, it should be participatory. 
structured for involvement of everyone. All can participate in matters of common life and influence those matters. Uh, it should be deliberative. Decisions emerge from, emerge from processes of discussion and consensus building rather than merely the results of formal proceduralism where we are tallied as isolated voters. It should be radical. Democratic principles should be expanded into all spheres of life, not just what we know as government today, but also into economic planning, production, distribution, as well as housing, stewardship over environment, etc. And it should be revolutionary. Democracy in it, is in itself a process of social transformation where the power of people sets out on a collision course with the privileges of the elites, where the foundations of the old system are consciously uprooted and a new system is created into the social reality, right? So I think it, th those are all really good ways to kind of evaluate our democracy, right? Um, you know, direct, how direct? Uh, you know, what if we're talking about representative democracy, um, you know, how is how much control do people have? How how is you know what are members? What are voters? What is our our power of recall? Things like that. Um, you know, it should be participatory. How much how much do people actually? Uh, engage right in the you in the United States. Our electoral system is not very direct, and it does not encourage participation. Um, we have other countries. I, I think Australia mandates voting. I could. I I'm pretty sure they that's who I'm thinking of that does. But we have some countries that mandate voting. You get fined if you don't, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that you have a participatory system, and that means you have a mandatory system, right? It, it's not just the act of voting. Um, that determines whether or not you participate in democracy. It, it's, we're talking about local, you know, communal councils and boards and, and every act of civic engagement. Um, That's partly why we include the next principle of deliberative, that it's not enough for people to just go vote. They've got to be able to um, participate not only by um, voting or kind of expressing their opinions or whatever, but that their opinions are actually taken into account as part of the process, a consensus building process that will actually influence the end result. Yeah, and and when you look at what we do now, it's just majority rule, right? And majority rule sets up for a large unhappy minority, um, especially when it's just bulldozed through, right? Um, bulldozing through is something the Republicans have shown very good at and the Democrats have shown unwilling to do, right? And when we're looking at the effects of that now, right? Um, you know, Roe versus Wade has been dropped in multiple chances to enshrine Roe in law instead of in precedent were passed up uh, by the Democratic Party. You know, so just the ability to pass something is not, is not in and of itself mean that it is democratic or that it represents, you know, a, a large group of people. So, <clears throat> you know, it's it's important to... You know, even if it's not consensus, right? We, I'm sure we could have a, a long debate amongst people on the left about consensus. I'm sure Garrett and I could have a long debate amongst each other about consensus. Um, and I would say we, but we are both pro-consensus people. But um, even if we're not talking about, you know, orthodox consensus, right? The process needs to be deliberative so that people's concerns are heard, not only heard but addressed. Right. Um, it shouldn't be, well, if we got 51%, we don't care. Um, that, that creates someone who's not happy within their society, especially 
you know, when you look at, I mean, just look at the United States. This is the direct outcome of, of majority rule, you know, and non-participatory, non-direct, non-radical, non-revolutionary politics. <laughs> Fli- um, flipping between presidents, they each get 51% of the vote, so so half the country's always angry, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it, I, and the idea of expanding democracy into all spheres of life is incredibly radical, right? Um, and it's necessary. This is when we talk about economic democracy, when we talk about when we talk about socialism, right? Worker ownership. We're talking about expanding democracy outside of just the electoral system, which in the United States isn't democratic at all, right? Um, but the same when you look at our economic sphere, right? We don't have a, a democratic economic system, right? We have a, a, a system, of an incredibly hierarchical capitalist system, right? That is so powerful that it even influences our political system uh, most of the time. And so one of the most radical things we can do is spread democracy throughout our lives, not just you know talking about democracy as in voting and electoralism, but democracy in our workplace, democracy in our community, um, democracy in our neighborhoods, right? Community assemblies and um, you know all that kind of stuff. Yeah, any, any, any place really that there needs to be uh decision-making, you know, beyond, I guess, very simple things in your personal life, we should think about how we can democratize that process. Um, and so that's beyond, you know, traditional government and voting and things. And, and that's also beyond the traditional kind of union focus on workplaces. Now, there's a lot of things that go into our communities where uh, we need to have this participatory deliberative structure that tries to get as many people involved in that process as possible. You know, not everyone works in the same workplace. You, you can't focus only on unions. Um, and, um, you know, government as it exists today, it doesn't necessarily, uh, in fact, it puts way too much into the market and things like that. It doesn't actually oversee a lot of this stuff. It leaves the decisions to wealthy people is essentially what leaving it to the market means. So instead of having that process, we want to have this uh, participatory process that includes everyone in the community in making that decision as opposed to leaving it to wealthy people um, or, you know, it, political insiders and things like that. Um, and just to kind of point, uh, throw in a point there on uh, what Chris said about consensus and all, um, I think one thing to try to avoid that sort of debate here is um, a lot of folks confuse consensus with unanimous. Unanimous meaning that everyone has to agree. And um, Consensus is not necessarily unanimous. It could be, and and in certain decisions, maybe it should even be. Uh, but consensus is really the process. It's not really that outcome. Um, the outcome of a consensus process could be unanimous. Uh, everyone agrees. The outcome could be a vote. It could be a majority vote or um, a supermajority vote of 60 or 70% or whatever it is. The point, important point about consensus is that it's this deliberative process where everyone is getting together, discussing their concerns, their issues, they're being heard, they're being evaluated by all the membership, and uh, you're working your way through that decision-making process to try to deal with as many problems as you possibly can, to deal with as many concerns as you can, uh, because that's what participatory means, right? Having everyone involved, hearing all those concerns, and trying to uh, address all of them in, in a fair, just, equitable way, all, you know, all of those things. Yeah, and a good example kind of how to think about, you know, decentralized democracy, but still understanding, you know, the need for coordination and, and a level of centralized planning would be healthcare, right? Um, if we were to just 
if we were to implement the Medicare for all that progressive Democrats want, right, all alone, just open the rolls, let everyone in on Medicare. Um, I, I, and I would imagine that even if they could get that passed, it would contain caveats that uh, private insurance gets to survive, right? Um, whereas, you know, a true single payer system would end private insurance as well. Um, you know, for most even, things, even in the best case scenario that they like eliminated private insurance or whatever it is, the you still have the, the best they're ever going to get. You still have the problem of uh, private for-profit hospitals and doctor's offices and pharmaceuticals and all these things. So we, we, that's part of the democratization process of asking, how do we make the hospitals more democratic uh, and accountable to their communities? How do we make pharmaceuticals? There's important life-saving drugs, insulin and things that need to be made. How do we make that in our community in an accountable way and not necessarily the billionaires or whatever owning it or political elites and things like that? Um, yeah. so, sorry, go ahead with Medicare. Yeah, for all. <laughs> yeah right. And so if, if we just get the public option, right, which like would be game-changing for millions of people, right? So we shouldn't, you know, we shouldn't shit on that too much. Um, but it essentially will be a feeding trough for these for-profit companies like private hospitals, private providers, private man medical manufacturers, the pharmaceutical company, right? Companies, right? It, it'll be a slush fund that they can just pull from because, and because we won't have removed, right, the profit motive from the entire sector. Much like we can't, you know, implement decentralization solely at the local level, we can't implement, you know, public health care solely at the level of insurance and payment. We need to, you know, socialize the pharmaceutical industry. We need to implement a, na a national health service uh, where providers and medical manufacturers and things like that are all brought under social control. Um, but even if we did that, right, through the most radical of you know, things that we've seen through, you know, from progressive Democrats or looking at, you know, England and their national health service, it still ran top down, right? A budget is passed at the top level. It is di distributed amongst people, amongst the different, you know, regions, and then they get to do what they can with it. Um, you know, when we're talking about decentralized, bottom-up, community-controlled health, uh, national health service, which is what we uh, in the 2020 campaign called for, what we called for was local health boards that were made up of community members, that were made up of the doctors and the nurses and the, you know, the work, the frontline worker, the front, you know, line workers at the actual uh, providers themselves. And that instead of doing what they could with a budget, they would send a budget of what they needed. And the responsibility of the, the legislature was to provide the funding that was necessary. Right. And then at the local level, they can address like, where do we have shortfalls? Where do we I live in a medical district? I can literally see two hospitals from my house. Right. Why are they right next to each other when there's whole areas of town that don't have coverage? Um, you know why? And same thing with, you know, smaller providers that aren't hospitals. They're all grouped around the hospitals. They're grouped around in the more wealthy white area of town. Right leaving most of the working class and most of the people of color in town with limited access. Um, and so when we bring in community control, when we reverse the flow of power from coming down, you know, top down to going bottom up, um, you know, it is a revolutionary thing that can completely change the game for us. So that's, you know, what does decentralization look like for society? What does decentralization look like for democracy? 
Uh, now we're going to go into what does decentralization look for organize look like for organizing, right? The work that we do in our communities, the work that we do, you know, in terms of the Green Party of the United States on the national level, which we'll get into that, that in a minute. Um, but decentralization allows for more fluidity and adaptability on the local level, right? And this is super important for a continental grassroots party. And I, I really want people in the United States on the left to like kind of take this idea in that we're doing continental organizing. Um, we're organizing on a massive uh, geographic scale, right? Um, in 2018, I was in, in Amsterdam and I met with a green city councilor um, from Amsterdam. And one of the things I walked away struck by was she could get anywhere in her country in two hours on public transit. Anywhere in the country, she could be there on public transit in two hours. I can't get out of my state in two hours. And public transit, I mean, I guess there's Amtrak a few times a day that will get me there eventually, right? But but it'd be faster in my car. Um, all right, so we, I think we really need to kind of have that understanding. And, and what does that mean? What does being continental organization mean? You know, it means that we really have to be fluid and collaborative in kind of working with the various regional and different geographic needs, right? Um, I said it in the next uh, in the next one, decentralization allows, so it allows chapters and organizers to focus their energies on issues that align with their unique local conditions, right? What the climate crisis looks like plays out differently in California than the Midwest, than the Gulf, right? Um, it, what so what environmental action, you know, looks like can vary greatly from place to place. If we're totally top down and taking orders from the top, it's going to be really hard for us to align. And I've done this, right? I've worked on, on or in organizations where the the directions came from the top, and I felt like I was slamming my head against the you know the wall trying to explain that those that top expectation didn't apply to my community. Um, so decentralization allows us to you know say we're fighting we're, we're you know taking action on the climate but what it looks like it's different in different communities um and by being able to adapt and engage in issues like this and in ways that relate to our local communities our work is more likely to connect with community members right if if you're so if you're garrett where they're fracking the hell out of pennsylvania right Engaging in anti-fracking activities makes a whole lot of sense. If you're in Illinois, where the Sierra Club and the Illinois Environmental Council got together with the Democratic Party and the oil and gas industry and legalized it, but we still don't have enough for it to be economical and there's not a single fracked well here, right? It doesn't make a whole lot of a sense for us to engage in that. Um, so when, if we got a top-down order to, you know, engage on, you know, to, to, push on back on fossil fuel usage, for instance, fracking is going to be key over there, right? But in Illinois, we're going to want to be talking about pipelines uh, because in South Central Illinois, we have a Enbridge hub where, you know, uh, the Dakota Access goes to the Keystone hits. Like we've got multiple pipelines hitting in one town and then shipping out to the Gulf or shipping out to the East Coast, right? So what it looks like is different. And if you come into most of Illinois talking about fracking, people are going to stop listening to you, right? If you go to Southern Illinois and talk about it, they'll listen. 
because that if it happens, that's where it's going to happen. But it hasn't really happened yet. Um, you know, so it, it looks different. And then decentralized organizing allows our members to engage on issues they're passionate about in ways that best utilize their skills and allows party resources to be devoted where members and energy should be focused. So decentralization makes it harder for us to put together large coordinated campaigns, right? Because the resources and direction are flowing from top down, it's a lot. It's harder for us to effectively coordinate, say, a national day of action. Um, but what decentralization allows us to do is to tailor these broad issues that that bring together what is the Green Party into our local concerns and our local actions. Um, you know, so decentralized organizing is it's really an important kind of methodology for organizing because it again it flips that power dynamic, right? Um, when you work with a group like the Sierra Club, you tend it tend to be tends to be top down, right? They tell you what they're going, what we're going to do, and you're part of we, but you didn't get a vote, right? You weren't in that backdoor meeting. You weren't that, you weren't in that backroom meeting where they decided what we were going to do. Um, and so when you engage in grass in decentralized grassroots organizing, um, it, it flips that script and it brings power to people and. When people get that power and begin to understand that power and are allowed to engage in ways that um, excite them, right? Then you, that's when you can actually, you know, start to harness the power of people against you know this massive amount of money and institutional power we're, we're facing up against. Yeah, and actually, I, I I think it's important to throw in there that. Uh, it's not necessarily an either or. It's it's a process of building. That's what organization is a, organizing is about. It's about building. It's about building the structures and the power necessary to carry out our bigger goals, um, to make the the bigger systemic change that we're really looking for. So uh, you know, one way to do that is to get folks excited and uh, passionate. Well, they're already excited and passionate about you know whatever's going on in their community. They they live that every day. They understand the importance of that and the and. Uh, what the problems are and why they need to be tackled. So we want to start by listening. If you've heard our old organizing 101s, right? Uh, you do more listening than preaching, right? You listen to them first and, and you hear their concerns and you encourage them, you empower them. You say, how can I help you with those local things? And that's part of our, our network. That's part of our party. How can we help each other with these local things? And eventually that builds to a larger national or continental movement because if we're looking at those local events, but connecting them back to capitalism, connecting them back to the root causes of all these problems, it initially looks like every local or region is looking at different problems, but you're slowly building a movement where we're all recognizing that, no, these are actually all stemming from the same underlying issues. And, and that's the powerful moment where that local organizing turns into national organizing and turns into um this this big mass movement which is what we ultimately need but it starts local and it starts in this decentralized thing where you want to uh focus on the important things in each community and and help those organizers with those local issues that that can easily reach people and bring them into the movement yeah and you know and allowing people to engage in things they're passionate about in ways that they you know that highlight their skills um, I, there's nothing worse than saying, I want to be involved and then be giving a task that's not suited for you whatsoever. Um, right. That's why we have to listen first. That's why we have to have conversations. Um, you know, that's and, why we have, we have to be real grassroots and not AstroTurf. Right. Yeah. 
and why uh, it's so important to have an uh, an educational movement as part of this this uh, uh, broader movement for socialism. Um, you know, it, we're engaging here in the in the in the Green Socialist Organizing Project, but also you know the the Youth Caucus and the Green Party and uh, all sorts of other organizations. Uh, the important way to start is is through education. Uh, like I said, connecting those local issues to the broader, uh, you know, the root issues at the core of all this, at the core of capitalism and, you know, hierarchy and all those problems. Um, and in the meantime, making sure that we're providing resources to people, which, like Chris says, uh, includes listening to them, what they're passionate about, finding out what their skills are and linking them to the things that can put their skills to use toward the things they're interested in. <laughs> Um, and if uh, and if they don't have skills in, in that particular topic, to set up mentoring and training programs, and also that we're so that we are building skills. That's a that's a good way to burn out organizers to throw everything on one person. Part of your education movement has to be training folks to to become organizers themselves and go off and keep organizing, right? Keep building the movement. Yeah, and uh, you know a, a prime example of that kind of pulling everything back you know, to those main, to those key values, right? Um, that I always think of is the organ the LGBTQIA organization ACT UP. Um, it was founded during the AIDS crisis and they had this just amazing, one, they were radical, you know, and confrontational, um, but they had this ability to hit on across all sectors of society but always come back to the AIDS crisis, right? So one day they're at Wall Street and they're protesting outside the stock, you know, the stock exchange about their complicity in the AIDS crisis. And then the next day they're at the CDC. And then the next day they're at Pfizer, right? And then the next day they're at the county health department, right? And they were they were able and that that gives like a kind of a breath of who you're impacting, right? And and who you're speaking to. And it also allows for, you know, if you've got all these different targets that you're going for, it allows for people to kind of work where they want to work, where they're passionate about, right? Um, the one person who was turned away from their county health department is probably going to be more passionate about getting to, you know, going to, to the and organizing around that county health department protest as compared to the person who can't afford their meds and is going to want to go after big pharma, right? Um, so by, by the decentralization allows people to kind of track to what they're interested in. And then you kind of see this natural organic, this is what we're doing, right? And instead of there being a meeting where you go through strategic planning, which is incredibly important and you should totally do, um, you know, but instead of, you know, coming through this like academic top-down people in the room decision about the path of your organization when you start organizing decentral in a decentralized way all of a sudden you're going to kind of see these nodes of activity popping up right and if they start popping up your organization's job is to start feeding them right these are the areas that people are passionate about working in these are the areas where we're getting traction right these are the areas where we found a void and no one else is talking about it um and so instead of saying oh, I know you really like that issue and I know you've got all kinds of people coming out to your stuff, but like we had a meeting and we said we were doing this thing, <laughs> right? That, that's the kind of, that's a top-down authoritative organizing that we're trying to get away from. And in, in that example, it's actively stifling, right? Activity and growth. 
Um, so when we do this kind of decentralized organizing, it, it, it really, it, it's a huge, huge benefit for us that it allows people um, to engage where they want to engage, engage in the ways that they want to engage, and then it allows this kind of organic bubbling up of what is actually important in our community, right? Because a lot of times when we, when you, if, we, if I put out a, a survey, right, that's what each individual thinks. Um, and if I'm not surveying the community in a, in a, you know, if I'm not casting a wide net, I'm going to get a very isolated view. Um, so the, the ability for decentralized organizing to shift and adapt and, and, and take on what is, you know, moving people is essential to our growth, I would say. So the, so how do we live up to it as greens? <laughs> Does GPUS live up to decentralized democracy? Um, I've been saying since we decided to do this one that my job is here is to not be too harsh um, on this topic. But while decentralization requires, as we said earlier, requires a high level of communication and collaboration, um, GPUS's version of decentralization has tended to be more chaos and disconnect. Um, communication lines are not great. Um, and because, uh, you know, another thing I think that needs to be addressed is that because we're an all volunteer organization for the most part, um, it means that we're relying on people that have a lot of other things on their plate, a lot of other things, you know, that they have responsibilities for. Um, so that, that vol all volunteer organization means that we need to have more backups, right? We need to have more uh, people involved in the organizing so that things don't get dropped. Um, in GPUS, the focus on localism and isolation and a lack of a clear and effective communications pipelines um, has led to a lack of, you know, focus and ability to do coordinated actions, right? And this has been something that the Green Party's kind of been going through right now internally is like, we want to do this thing, but how and can we? <laughs> right. Or the, what does the, what is the value of it? The, the, I think most Greens on the, that operate within the National Party have this kind of question in their mind of what is the value of a national committee uh, proposal and uh, declaration? Right. If it doesn't come with mandates for states, if it doesn't come with action steps that are clear and able to be taken, um, if it's not clearly communicated back to the member parties that are actually the you know the power of the of the confederation, um, what does that mean, right? And so that that's an area where the Green Party's kind of fallen into de kind of dysfunctional decentralization. Um, decentralization, like we talked about earlier, in the Green Party, it's often been used to shield bad actors for, from accountability, and GPUS lacks effective conflict resolution processes for either member individual people or their member party's caucuses. Um, so this means that often conflict is just left unresolved. Um, bad actors are allowed to just stay, um, which means that the people that they were, you know, going after uh, or that they were causing problems for often leave. Um, and, and so basically we, we often lose the good organizers at the expense of bad actors because we don't, you know, we, we don't have proper processes in place to address it. Um, and then Despite call val green green values calling for grassroots direct democracy, 
um, Jeep and you know, kind of anti-bureaucracy language that we read at the beginning from our from our 10 key values. Um, GPUS is often extremely bureaucratic in function and rank and file greens are often completely disconnected from what's happening at the national party, um, which frankly is good most of the time. But if the national party were, you know, functioning more, more effectively and efficiently, we would want that kind of, uh, you know, connection. Yeah. I, uh, I think kind of the the theme here that's interesting um, that I know I've experienced and I, I think Chris did too as uh, being involved in the national committee and national stuff is that um, while there's a uh, a lot of talk about being decentralized and a um, what would you call it like a I suppose a will to be decentralized uh, what's kind of ironically occurred is that the focus on keeping the national party decentralized and focused on member states is that we've lost focus on the fact that not all of the member states properly practice decentralized democracy themselves. Um, and not all of the committees at the national level practice decentralized democracy, that they'll sometimes have, um, you know, a couple of co-chairs and a couple of members kind of make all the decisions and, and, and they're not necessarily as deliberative and participatory and all that we talked about um, as it should be. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, as a result of that, um, all of these different committees and even some state parties end up very isolated from each other and very siloed from each other. Um, and so we don't have very good um, collaboration and communication across them. Um, and our rank and file members, our local parties that often do a lot of really good work, a lot of good organizing work and activism work and, you know, run local candidates and, and win local offices very regularly that ends up very disconnected from the network of state parties and the national party. Um, so I, I think some of our challenge here is that, uh, you know, we have the right set of values and the right ideas, uh, but not entirely the, the right implementation here um, of how the national party and how the state parties are supposed to interoperate and work together and hold each other accountable. Uh, Cause part of the problem here is that if there's a problem in the national party, the national party is not empowered to really do anything because it's assumed that the state party will hold folks accountable. But again, if that state party is, is not necessarily living up to all of the decentralized values that we've talked about, then it's very hard to hold folks accountable, or at least it's, it's a drawn out bureaucratic process with, you know, all of its problems. Right. So um, these, these are the points I think we can look at to, uh, to improve and better live up to those key values. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it was almost, it's almost built in, um, you know, when, when GPUS was formed as a confederation of member states, um, GPUS was established to be the bureaucratic administrative body that oversaw and, well, not oversaw, you know, acted as the conduit for collaboration for those things, right? Um, so despite the 10 key values taking an anti-bureaucratic stance, uh, GPUS was established as basically a solely bureaucratic body. Um, and the, the problem, you know, one of the key problems that I see is that there's not a lot of ways for states, which are the members, right, um, of GPUS to actually exert power and, and affect change, right, it, it, or, or even talk to each other through communication, right? GPUS has kind of become a black hole for communication and power 
uh, instead of a conduit that leads from one state to the other, right? Um, it, it, when you, it, there's just so many different ways and we're actually gonna move in right now and talk about, okay, so we were just pretty harsh on the party, um, but how could we improve it? You wanna take this one, Garrett? Yeah, so, you know, we ran through those uh, complaints, I suppose. Um, and kind of identified the the lack of um, uh, structure that supports proper bottom up decision making and and uh, you know this direct deliberative participatory uh, you know confederal sort of democracy that we've been talking about as as what we mean by a decentralized democracy. Um, so the you know the ways that we can counter it um, are to try to better involve people to make it participatory um, and to hold. Uh, to make it accountable, uh, not just to abstract state parties and things, but abstract to actual members. Um, so the first point here is to move to a membership-based party instead of uh, the current structure, which is, uh, as Chris pointed out, um, a confederation of state parties, these kind of like legal entities, so to speak. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned, what happens with that is that, um, the national party assumes that state parties will um, take appropriate action to uh, support the key values, to hold folks accountable, to recall people if there's a problem, um, things like that. But if the state parties are not based in um, these structures, if, if they don't have the right structures to hold their members accountable, it, it causes all kinds of trouble. Um, and so you have this indirect disconnect here where members, individual people, are theoretically involved in their local and state parties, but then not directly in the national party. Everything that happens in the national party is through delegates. And so, you know, you have this very indirect democracy instead of direct. So by switching to a membership party, we can actually engage all of our members. And those members can have direct accountability as individual members of the national party, not just their local and state party. They can actually directly... Um, influence decision-making and directly participate in decision-making, see what's going on and not have these delegate intermediaries that kind of confuse the, the issue and the waters. Um, next up is to open that participant participation, which is, I guess what I touched on a little bit here, open participation beyond the national committee structure. So again, the, the national party um, currently empowers a national committee um, which is made up of delegates that are elected from each of the state parties and caucuses. Um, but that structure means that you have to go through your state party and become an elected delegate and, um, you know, uh, be appointed to work on a committee and things like that. It's, it's very bureaucratic in order to get involved in the national party. So instead, we have to think about how we can get our, our individual members at the local and state um, levels involved in the national party not necessarily in all of the administrative work or whatever but if there's a project for example if there's some kind of um goal um if we want to say have a national medicare for all rally day or something like that there's got to be projects that are are sponsored by the national party um and the national party does its role of communicating to members and and having a space where uh individual members across the, the country can come together in that space and participate in planning that event and making it happen and, and you know all the stuff that goes along with it. So we want to avoid this excessive bureaucracy that keeps things siloed in, in uh, committees and instead make it possible for groups of members to come together and participate in those projects and even 
um, declare their own projects. Like right now, there is no way for a group of Green Party members to go to the National Party and say, hey, we would like to have this particular thing happen, right? We want to host a rally in D.C. We want to, um, you know, uh, start some sort of educational program. We want to host a, a fundraiser online or whatever. There's no real process for that. Um, it's expected that you go through your state party and submit a proposal through your delegate, and it goes through this whole bureaucratic thing. There needs to be a proposal process where members can actually uh, submit the proposal and then get the National Party support to work on that project outside of this very bureaucratic committee structure. Um, we need to adopt better consensus processes. Like we were saying earlier, consensus is a process that needs to be deliberative and it needs to be participatory. We need to make sure that everyone who wants to be involved in that process, in that decision-making process, who has uh, comments or feedback or concerns or anything like that can be involved in it. Um, so, you know, for example, uh, <laughs> especially in this era of modern technology, and we saw it during the pandemic, um, if you hold meetings that are in person or even on calls or whatever that um, are at specific times, you know, folks have jobs or, you know, maybe they have to babysit their kids or you know, they don't have a babysitter or whatever it is, right? Uh, life happens. <laughs> and so if there's things that happen specifically at a certain point in time or whatever, that might actually restrict people's ability to get involved in processes. Uh, to get involved in projects, to get involved in committees. That's happened where if you can't make the once a month committee call at precisely 8 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday or whatever, then you don't, you effectively don't have a say in what the committee is doing because that's where all the formal decisions are made. So we want to open that up and we want to think about how can we have a better consensus process that can work for everyone and be inclusive of everyone where we're gathering that feedback and integrating it into proposals and trying to refine them and make them the best possible things. Uh, in order to do that properly, we have to have better communication. Decentralization requires greater communication and organization to make that happen. So we have to think about our tools and our processes that are going to um, facilitate this sort of thing. Um, and that might actually mean developing some of our own tools uh, because we don't really have a whole lot of uh, our own great tools you know, for uh, uh, collaboration on particularly these, these politically minded projects. Um, you can have things like Slack, for example, that are communication things, but they're kind of designed for jobs and, and not necessarily the deliberative sort of process that we want for, um, you know, organizing work. Um, so we'll have to think more about the tools and um, the processes that we want to use to include everyone and then what sort of tools would support those processes. And finally, we want to hold states and caucuses accountable. So as, as we mentioned several times, you know, there's delegates. Um, who uh, go to the national committee and are not necessarily, um, um, it can be difficult to hold them accountable for their views. It, it can be difficult to even understand if some delegates are actually speaking for their membership or if they're just speaking for themselves. That's what accountability is, right? It's making sure that they are actually representing the views of their members um, and carrying out the will of their members and communicating with their members and, and all that stuff. So decentralization is not a free-for-all. It doesn't mean that states and caucuses do whatever they want. It doesn't mean that delegates go and do whatever they want. We have to make sure that we're um, including everyone again in that process, that delegates represent folks. And if there's any sort of conflict between either two delegates or uh, two members at the state level or whatever, whatever it is, um, that we support them through mediation processes, through restorative justice processes, um, that... Um, 
uh, recall and things like that exist in uh, for delegates, not only for the national committee, but also in all of the, the work committees where things happen that, um, you know, you can recall a co-chair or something like that, right? If, if things are not happening. Um, all of the parts and aspects of direct democracy that we talked about earlier, we need to make sure that that's happening in all of our states and our caucuses and our committees. Um, and, and right now that's not consistently happening everywhere, um, partly because some of our bylaws and rules and procedures and all uh, don't actually require it or are very vague about it or, and even differ between com committees and caucuses. So kind of um, normalizing that and making sure that there's a very good baseline that supports direct democracy um, is an important step forward. Um, so I ran through the list. Do you have any things to add, Chris? I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've literally seen strong parties fall apart um, over issues that just needed an outside mediator, right? But there aren't clear paths for that within the within the Green Party of the United States. We have a dispute resolution committee, uh, but no party is required to participate right so so if you go and say i'm ha we have a problem with this um and the other party says i don't want to talk about it then it's over right end of story it's turn it's, in, as far as the green party is concerned the only other tool that the green party of the united states has is to fully de-accredit a member party or caucus right um which is often not it's very rarely a rational response to a problem with an individual, you know, for example. Um, so, you know, the, the lack of that, and I talked about it earlier, right? This, this mirrors a lack of any kind of real restorative process throughout a society, throughout our, you know, government, throughout our civic world. Um, these things just don't exist in our society. Um, so we definitely need to work them out internally. Um, because we're going to need them as we grow, right? Um, I, I'm, I, if we're going to, if the Green Party wants to be, actually wants to become a mass membership, right, large-scale party, like we talked about, we're going to need education programs. We're going to need, um, you know, kind of conflict resolution processes and institutions. We're going to need restorative justice um, processes because, the law, you know, like I said, we live in a, we're living in society that lacks all of this, um, and it's created a culture that has a lot of reactionary thinking that we're going to need to address as people come into the party, right? And we can't just kick everyone out because they they used to have this view, right? We need to we need a way to work with people and move people through things, um, and where where I think that you know the national party could kind of play an institutional role in that, right? But the real work of that, again, this is about decentralization, happens on the local level, right? Um, that's where people will actually listen to each other. That's where people have relationships outside of yelling at each other on a listserv or, you know, or on social media, right? That's where we have common conditions and understandings that we can leverage to move through these things. Um, so while there is a huge void on the national level, of this stuff and of these resources to kind of be passed down, right? Um, you know, and Amy L. Sachs in the chat said that their chapter had to get a hold of a mediator from the outside to try to resolve things, 
you know, and then that's where we need, right? But they shouldn't have to go outside. The National Party should have that. Um, but kind of the double edge of, you know, the other side of that coin is this work is best done at the local level. Um, so even though there isn't that national, we should be trying to put these things in place on that local level. Um, you know, I, people's opinions are rarely changed by someone shouting at them over the internet. Um, people's opinions tend to be changed by real world experiences that they or people that they love and care about have, right? Um, I, I, years ago, I was organizing with a group and one of our members was a, an ex-vet, was a vet, an ex-military member, and had come from a traditionally far right-wing background. Um, that's my child who's <laughs> not happy. Um, he's not going down tonight. Um, but he'd come from this right-wing military background in a small town community. Well, one of his, you know, close friends came out as trans and he saw the entire community turn on this person, right? He heard, he, he, he experienced the hatred that was coming from his own worldview and it flipped a switch in him, right? A switch that I could have never gotten by talking to him about political theory, right? He had to experience it. And when I knew him, he was organizing within an anarchist organization. He was active. This was during um, the Trump regime. And he, had, especially during the, specifically during the, the big spike in attention on immigration issues and ICE raids. And, you know, this is a, far, a, a formerly far right military member who had an open offer that if there was an undocumented person that needed a place, he had a place and no one would ever find, like, you know, he was, he was out there publicly saying, I will shelter you and I will keep them away, right? And that kind of change can only happen on that personal level, right? Something had to happen to him in his life. So that's where, we, you know, we have to do this kind of work locally. Um, but GPUS could do a lot more in terms of just functional structures to work through these things to, you know, outside mediators. Too often we're trying to mediate our own things. And you cannot effectively mediate when you've got skin in the game, right? <laughs> that, that, that creates biases. Um, yeah, one thing that uh, I think all these points kind of touch on, uh, but it isn't uh, a clear bullet point. Maybe it should be added in the future, is... Um, how important it is to have a, um, a stable budget as one of the resources here, because uh, a lot of what the National Party uh, can and should do is to provide these structures and uh, the infrastructure and the tools. And that could be um, technical tools uh, like web tools and all to, you know, manage uh, organizers and volunteers and all that stuff, uh, but also tools in the sense of uh, training that we should be able to uh, to hire trainers and to pay to, you know, fly trainers that the work happens locally, but we can send a trainer to your local party who can sit with you and meet with you and teach you the skills and to kind of walk you through the process and stuff. Uh, that way you're not felt left alone um, because uh, that, unfortunately that's what happens with a lot of local organizers that you, you start off with a lot of momentum. And then if you feel like everything's on you and you're not getting any help, that's, I, that's the road to burnout city. <laughs> so part of our, you know, part of us being a, a party, being a network, being, you know, 
a movement and not just uh, a little local community or local group or whatever is being there to support each other. And uh, one way that we do that is uh, providing the budget and the resources to provide education and training, um, which of course can only happen if there is a solid budget. So that's, that's another positive aspect of switching to the membership based party that not only is the structure more accountable to directly to individual members, but we also have this solid funding base that, it, you know, the more our membership grows, the more we have this funding. And part of our promise is if you become a member, we have all these resources for you. You can have the communication structure. You can have the trainer that'll fly out and help you once a year or whatever. You'll have someone help you with ballot access to give you training on that. You know, all of the things that the party needs to get started with organizing. Yeah, and, you know, I can speak from personal experience there. In Illinois, we were founded in the 90s as a dues-paying party. Um, that was removed and moved to a sustainer model. Um, and then in 2017 or 18, I don't remember which one it was, um, we moved back to a dues model. Um, and what we've found is that our funding is much more stable. Right. Um, in, in the, under the sustainer model, we were often having, you know, more, more privileged and wealthy members bailing us out. Right. Um, I, I remember the turning point um, kind of for that, that movement in my state was we had a, uh, we were having a membership meeting and at the fundraiser afterwards, um, our, the secretary, state party secretary at the time was talking about uh, you know, it was giving a fundraising pitch that was more of a shame pitch um, because he said there are 12 people that give sustaining monthly, do, you know, payments to the party. There are 60 people in the room. You know who you are. And then he made his pitch for dues um, and it passed. I don't believe it was unanimously, but pretty close, um, you know, at the next meeting. So, um that, that the membership-based party provides a level of stability that allows us to plan for growth instead of going through these boom and bust cycles, which is what happens with the Green Party on the national level, where every four years there's a presidential cycle and we get a boom year, right? And then, But then we go back to austerity budgets within a, a year or two later. Um, I can also say as a former national, a former GPUS committee chair, there's nothing more frustrating than someone coming to me and saying, I want to get involved in your committee and do work. And me having to say, you need to email your state party and get appointed. Right. Um, literally turning people away. And I would usually like engage them while they were going through that process. Right. Like, let's get you involved, but you need to do this thing. Um, you know, so we're putting these bureaucratic barriers um, and then, I mean, I think one of the really central key things is that communication line, right? Um, we, we really have to improve communication through our, you know, whether it's membership-based or, or um, you know, our current confederation, right? Changing that doesn't improve our communication automatically. Uh, it, it's a systems thing. It's a cultural thing. Um, and we really need to address that so that when... The national committee does say we endorse the Earth Day to May Day movement, which seeks to connect the ecological and the economic justice movements in that about week between those two, those two holidays, right? When we endorse that, it means that we are going to see 
states and parties putting things on on a local level that we are even going to see the national party putting things on during that week right um, we need a culture where we're, where we're centering action at the end of everything we do um, action steps and plans and strategies so um, you know there's a lot of ways that the gpus could be improved um, garrett and i and and gsop in general if you look at our bylaws it's explicitly in our bylaws um, that uh, moving to a membership party is, is key. And it's a realization of decentralization, right? To loop back to what we're talking about. That's what, what the dues membership system is. So uh, I had actually, I thought I'd moved those, but I didn't. <laughs> Um, so thank you very much, everybody. Um, we're a little over an hour now. We went a little long. Um, I, I, I think that it's important that we have conversations like this about, um, you know, decentralization and our key values. I think it's important that we have them in a critical way, right? Like we did tonight, we both criticize decentralization broadly and our own practice, um, you know, yet at the end, for all the reasons in the middle, um, you know, for the, the effectiveness of decentralized organizing, for the, you know, actual democracy that decentralization provides, not only electorally and, and you know, politically, but throughout our, our society in all sectors, um, and, and for how decentralized, you know, society is, it can be, uh, you know, a radical transformation that, uh, you know, can get us where we're trying to go. Um, you know, despite all those flaws and for those reasons, you know, Garrett and I are both pretty strong advocates of decentralization, uh, right? No system is perfect. Um, we're especially not, no system is perfect when being implemented by humans, um, especially <laughs> exactly. when those humans are all volunteers, especially right. when those volunteers wear too many hats, especially when those volunteers volunteer for organization that doesn't have a whole lot of resources, right? Yeah. <laughs> to, to kind of swing that a little bit more positive here, I, uh, one aspect I'll kind of riff on what Chris said earlier about how important it is to think that we're organizing on a continental scale, and it's very big, and we, we have to kind of allow ourselves the room to understand that that it's it's a it's a very big job and um but we can get there together by building up this this uh continental movement starting from our local levels and connecting them together through you know things like the green party um and i think the aspect of that also is because we've all grown up under this system of capitalism we have all lived under capitalism our whole lives like it's not like the U.S. suddenly became capitalist last year or something, right? Like our whole lives, our parents' lives, our grandparents, whatever, you know, anyone who's been in the U.S., <laughs> if your family's been in the U.S., you've lived under capitalism. And so that means that we've all grown up in this, in this culture, this attitude, this political atmosphere that has encouraged us to think of democracy as the U.S. representative version, that you have only a very indirect say every two to four years on maybe sort of influencing a little bit if you're lucky enough to have a primary, which only a handful of districts do every uh, election. <laughs> and otherwise, you're not really involved. Your representative goes off and makes laws, and, and maybe you could call them and try to stop really horrible things, but you're generally not really involved. You're not expected to be involved. They think it's weird if you're involved, <laughs> right? Um, 
so the point is that we've grown up under this culture where um, we don't actually understand what democracy is because we don't live it every day. We don't practice it every day. We live under a very undemocratic, very anti-democratic society, despite how much the culture wants to pretend otherwise. So this is a learning process for us. We have to give ourselves the space to understand that um, we're learning democracy as we go. Um, and that includes building democracy in political parties, in our community, you know, in our workplace, um, you know, healthcare and food co-ops, like whatever it is you're involved in, you try to practice democracy every day. And the more that we practice it, the more we're going to get better at it, that these these complaints and criticisms are not, you know, just to be mean or whatever, right? It's, it's, we've tried and here, and, and we tried and here's some things that we've noticed. And if we address those, we'll get better at it. We'll get better at democracy. We'll get better at organizing and we'll get better at moving toward the movement that we need. That's going to get the systemic change that we need. And we um, have to, we have to get better, <laughs> right? right? Because it's important for people to understand, right? The system that we live in, and that we operate in under this this authoritarian top-down system is working as designed right it was meant to to alienate us from from our representatives it was meant to to kind of segregate us from power right it, it's working exactly how it's designed and we need to understand that because when we're talking whether we're really no matter what issue we're talking about Right. When, we're, when we get to kind of that point where it's like, well, do we want modest reform or do we want to take a new path? Right. And when we have that, one of the things we have to, you know, have this conversation about strategically when we're at that kind of fork in the road is, well, does the current path even allow for what we want? Right. We can pass ranked choice voting. Right. But if you're in a state like Illinois, where you to run for Congress in my district as a Republican or Democrat, you have to collect 750 to 800 signatures. But to run as a Green, a Libertarian, or an Independent, you have to collect 16,000 signatures in 90 days from one mostly rural district. Ranked choice voting doesn't matter here because it'll only be the Republicans and the Democrats on the ballot, right? And if we, when we get, even if we get on the ballot, it's still for first past the post, post single member, member districts where most people, well, not most, where a large minority is unrepresented, right? And so when we think about these, you know, the idea of forging a new path, right? Doing this really hard thing of, you know, advocating and trying to put into place a transformational system, we have to understand that, you know, the system that we have in place now isn't corrupted. It's act, it's acting as designed, right? Our our system was is not designed in any way to provide, you know, where were they? Sorry, these, right? Our system is not designed to provide direct, you know, direct access and democracy. It's not designed to be participatory. It's not designed to be deliberative at the at the individual level. It's well, it is radical, but it's radical in the worst ways, right? It's radical in that it radically, um, you know, uh, sequesters power in the hands of the few, right? That's not the kind of radical we're talking about. But capitalism is radical. Yeah, it's, sure. it's extreme. It, neoliberalism neo is is the radical idea that people with money should make all the decisions in all aspects of life. Yeah. <laughs> so we need to make sure we're remembering, right, that 
that we're not just advocating for something new because we're curmudgeons, right? Or we're advocating for something new because what we have cannot allow for what we want. Um, it cannot allow for what, we what we're fighting for. And we, we can't keep, we frankly don't have the time to keep putting our energies into, uh, you know, outlets that don't actually end where we need them to end. Um, you know, in, in my, my time working as a community organizer, one thing I can tell you is people are ready for a new path. They're not really interested in someone trying to game the path better. Um, they're not trying to. Uh, they're not trying to get a slightly larger piece of the pie. They want to throw the pie out. Um, this is why the largest voting block most elections is non-voters, right? They're they're not apathetic like people would like to you know paint them. They're they're alienated. Um, they're, they're alienated from power. They're alienated from um, you know being able to participate and being able to you know have a voice and. Um, what they are ready for is something new so it's up to us to build it um you know and, and de by doing it in a decentralized way we buffer against um you know a lot of the problems that are built in and by design in, in our you know authoritative system we have now So with that, um, we're at an hour and a half. Um, I do want to say that Amy Sachs said in the chat, I'd love a meeting where we could just troubleshoot what's specifically wrong in local chapters and celebrate what's gone well, right? And I do want, before we go, I do want to kind of bring this point up that we're building community, right? Uh, whether at the local level or a national level in our collaborations. Um, and we need this communication to be effective, right? But we also need it to grow as a community and, and kind of develop unified perspectives and unified um, strategies, right? We need to be able to share what works and what doesn't work. We need to be able to come to a group of experienced people and say, this is what's happening and have someone say, well, we had that happen and tried this, don't do that. Right. And another person say, we tried to, we did do this and it was okay. Right. And work through some things. Um, right now, all we really have in that way is the national committee, 160 people who are largely on, you know, accountable to their, the, the members in their state. So um, I told Amy, uh, we actually tried that with our second organizing 101 in 2022. Attendance wasn't great, but I'm more than willing to, uh, you know, even if it was just recurring, set up a organizer chat, right, where people came on and onto a Zoom and had a conversation. Um, we could do it a lot of different ways, but um, I think that's important for that communication, but also just for building the relationships that we need to to get this done and, and building the camaraderie and the solidarity. Um, you know, in my experience, the best ideas often come not in the meeting. Uh, they come at 2 a.m. after the meeting when you're sitting around you know that they come at they come in a bar when someone says hold on i need to go find x and x and then they come back and say x and x are too drunk for this but we need to talk about it tomorrow right that's that's when those good ideas come out not necessarily in your business meeting so i i absolutely agree that you know we need decentralization you know when we 
the communication methods essential for decentralization have to be member to member um, as well, individual member to individual member. So with that, um, we will be back next month uh, on the fourth Tuesday, which is the 25th. Uh, we'll be doing Eco-Socialist Green New Deal 101. Um, we will probably focus a lot more on um, kind of comparative and broad strokes of the Eco-Socialist Green New Deal that we developed in 2020, as opposed to you know very specific policy proposals. Um, but that will be part of our Earth Day to May Day events that we're going to be doing that week. And um, so, yeah, if you want to learn more about these 101 series and the other stuff that we do, uh, you can get involved in the Green Socialist Organizing Project at greensocialist.net. And uh, we will see everyone next month. Have a good one. Thank you.